Good morning, everybody. Good to see all of you. Oh, there I am. Hey, lots of new faces this morning. Thanks for being here. Happy New Year to you. And, um, you know, we're at, we're at a season right now where we're having a lot of new people, which is great. Praise God. And, and uh, we're also at a season where we don't have a lot of community groups. And so it's an interesting uh, time. But this is what I would ask you. If you're part of our church family, will you please show hospitality uh, to the newer people here and love them, get to know them. Um, let's just, uh, let's take care of one another well here. Uh, two weeks from today, I want to invite you to join us. Uh, we're going to have a celebration Sunday. Uh, we're coming to the end of our fiscal year at the end of February and around this time of year. It's just really good and important to stop and take a minute and thank the Lord uh, for all the ways that he's worked uh, in our church, in our families uh, this past year. And so we want to do that, and uh, that's going to be a... Uh, an encouraging time, I hope. And so that'll be two Sundays from today, and I hope you'll join us for that. So we're going to jump back into the book of Acts this morning. And as we do that, let me just kind of refresh your memory on what's happening here. We're following Paul and Barnabas. Uh, the year was about 80, uh, 46 AD, and they had been sent out by their church to basically go share the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. Oh, am I still on? Okay, okay. You let me know. Don't throw anything at me, but just let me know. Um, and so they were going around sharing the gospel. Uh, you know, it's not unlikely that some of the people had heard of Jesus, but they were preaching the gospel where he hadn't been preached before. And in those towns and places where people were responsive to the gospel, trusting in Jesus, uh, they would often stay there for a little while and make disciples of them. They would teach people to obey everything that Jesus had commanded. And essentially, Paul and Barnabas were obeying Jesus by doing this. They were obeying the great commission that he gave to the church. Uh, we read that most clearly in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, which says, uh, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And this great commission is for you and me too, if we are disciples of Jesus. Uh, this is why our church purpose statement says that Cedar Home Baptist Church exists to bring glory to God by making disciples of Jesus through gospel-centered worship and community and service and multiplication. And as we're going to see in this passage, our commission that Jesus has given to us is not an easy commission. It's not a commission that will be accomplished with little resistance. It is not a commission that we can complete by, if we just rely on our own power and strategize really well and uh, just have enough determination and grit, we can get this thing done. It's not how it works. This commission, this great commission, was authored by God. It was his idea because he's gracious. And it's going to be finished by God because it's his mission. And he's going to do this as he graciously speaks the gospel and demonstrates his love through that gospel, through our love for one another to the world, and he's gonna use weak people to do that. Like you and me, he's gonna preach a powerful gospel. The only hope we have to the world around us. And so, like you and me, Paul and Barnabas were also normal, weak people. And if you've got your Bible with you, I want you to open up to Acts chapter 14, verse one where we're going to pick up today. Before we read this, let's just ask the Lord to help us, okay? Lord Jesus, thank you for bringing us here. Thank you for uh, this time and place where you brought us this morning to be here with fellow Christians, to worship you, to hear your word preached. And um, we just come, Lord, with all sorts of different burdens and trials and tribulations in this room. And we thank you that uh, you're, you're not unaware of those things, and neither are you uh, not concerned about those things in our lives. But uh, you're both imminent, you're intimately aware of the trials that we're going through, of the prayers that we pray to you. Uh, you know what we need, 
and you've already provided for our greatest needs, and you're with us right now. So please feed us with your word, Holy Spirit. Please teach our hearts to love you more, uh, to turn to you, to turn away from whatever we're trusting in that isn't you, and uh, please just sanctify us, God. Make us more like you. We, uh, again, recognize that this is not a simple request on our behalf, that we are in the middle of a, a struggle. We ask that you would protect us from Satan and from our flesh and from the world. Give us supernatural focus and desire for you as we open your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so before actually we jump into 14.1, I want to just, this helps me to, to see this. Maybe it'll help you. Just to remind us where we're at. So Paul and Barnabas were sent from Antioch, their church in Antioch. They went to this town called Seleucia, which is a port city, hopped on a ship to go to this island country of Cyprus. They went to Salamis. They preached the gospel in the synagogue there. And then as they hiked along Cyprus, they preached the gospel until they finally came to this town of Paphos, which was kind of the, the Roman headquarters of that island, Cyprus. It was there that uh, Sergius Paulus, uh, the, the Roman proconsul, heard the gospel and trusted in it, and it was also there that uh, Paul uh, blinded uh, Illumis, Sergius Paulus's um, magician friend who was trying to lead Sergius Paulus away from the faith. So after Sergius Paulus came to faith, uh, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark at that time hopped on a ship up to the mainland again, and they went to this town called Perga. It was there that John Mark uh, decided he didn't want to be on the missionary voyage for whatever reason. He came back to his hometown of Jerusalem. After going to Perga, they hiked up into Pisidian Antioch, which was a really high climb up into the mountains. Paul and Barnabas did this, and when they got there, they preached the gospel to the Jews. The Jews loved it, and then Paul and Barnabas said, hey, we're here for the Gentiles too, not just the Jews. And then the Jews hated them and they chased them out of town. And so they chased them out of town 90 miles. Uh, this is a Roman military road. It's called the Via Sebasta. And so it wasn't like they were just hiking through the woods. They were going on military roads, which are still there today. The next major town was Iconium, about 90 miles away. And that's, that's where uh, we talked about a little bit in our last passage. And that's where today's passage takes place. Another interesting thing, just so you know, uh, where Paul and Barnabas are today in this passage, they're in these towns called Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and the surrounding areas, all of this. This is Galatia. So when you read the book of Galatians, this is who Paul wrote to, okay? It was to these churches. This was his first visit to them, and he would later, in a few years, write book of Galatians, which would be back to these same people. So, um, so again, Paul and Barnabas were chased out of Pisidian Antioch. They're in Iconium, and we're going to pick up uh, at Acts 14, verses 1 to 7. It says this. Now, at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some sided with the apostles. When an attempt was made by uh, both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. So, so when they first arrived in Iconium, uh, Paul and Barnabas preached Jesus Christ and him crucified, and this is what verse 1 says, that, that the Holy Spirit worked through them with great power. They granted many non-believers, uh, repent, uh, he grant, uh, God granted repentance and faith to many non-believers there. But it says that the non-believing Jews uh, were disgruntled by this, and that they responded by poisoning the minds of the Gentiles and eventually stirring up opposition against Paul and Barnabas. And then, the, and so you have this opposition going on, but then the next verse starts with the word so, which doesn't make sense. So because of the opposition, Paul and Barnabas stayed, right? So apparently the opposition wasn't strong enough to kick them out of town. But it says instead they kept preaching the gospel boldly. And as we've talked about in several of our sermons, this was an indication of the Holy Spirit's presence and power working in and through them. Uh, that in the face of this strong opposition, they 
they were filled with the love of Christ to continue to preach uh, the, the gospel to them. And it says that God also performed signs and wonders through Paul and Barnabas to kind of further validate uh, the power of the gospel and also the trustworthiness of their message that they were preaching. And what's, um, even after seeing these miracles, right, you, you would think that this would be enough evidence. It's like, why didn't the whole town just come to Christ then? Well, it says that even after seeing these miracles, verse 4 says the city was still divided. And verse 5 says that the non-believers attempted to capture and kill Barnabas. They caught word of it. And so that's when they uh, fled from Iconium until they came to those Galatian cities of Lystra, Derby, and the surrounding cities. And what's interesting is that, you know, instead of like hiding in a cave and saying, you know, let's just rethink this whole great commission thing, it says that they just continue to preach the good news of Jesus. They continue to preach the, the grace of God and Jesus Christ. And now verses 8 to 20, it tells us specifically about what happened in the city of Lystra. And at that time, this, the city of Lystra was a, it was dominated by Greek culture. There, it doesn't appear that there were a lot of Jews there. This was a town saturated with Greek culture. The Greeks were very religious. Uh, they were polytheistic, meaning they didn't believe in just one God. They believed in many gods. I'm sure we've heard of them. Many of our, many of our uh, stars are named after them. Uh, they believed that the king of the gods was Zeus. He's the god of thunder in the sky. Uh, they had a temple near their city gates where the citizens worshipped Zeus. They made sacrifices to Zeus. They had priests dedicated to Zeus. Uh, and then also in this town, they, they worshipped other Greek gods like Hera, the goddess of women, and Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and Apollo, the god of the sun, and Poseidon, the god of the sea, and Hermes, the messenger god, and many, many more. Well, soon after Paul and Barnabas entered Lystra, in this Greek town, the Holy Spirit prompted Paul to heal a lame beggar. A guy was, was crippled, he was on the street, begging for money. And this is a flashback of what happened to Paul earlier, I think in chapter 3, when Paul did this in Jerusalem. Let's read verses 8 to 10 here. It says, now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and he sprang up and began walking. Okay, so, so Paul, it's important to know this, he didn't enter into Lystra with the intent of finding someone to heal Right, so let's heal somebody, we'll do this miracle, and then we'll gather a crowd and they'll listen to our message. That wasn't it. That's not how healings work in the New Testament. The language used to describe this scene, it's very similar to what happened in Jerusalem earlier. Paul was speaking here in Lystra, and he noticed, for whatever reason, he noticed a particular man, a lame beggar who was paying attention to him. And the Holy Spirit prompted Paul to look intently at this man, just like he did earlier. And, and then God in, somehow enabled Paul to see that this lame beggar had faith to be, to be healed and that it was God's will for this man to be healed. And so Paul, with a loud voice, commanded this lame man to stand upright onto his feet. Now think about that. Just think about that. Um, Paul's commanding this man to do something he'd never done his entire life. Something this man, he was not able to do this. He couldn't do this on his own. But in response, this is, this is just in response to God's words. The power of God's words just speaking through Paul here. It says that the lame man sprang up and began walking. I love that. I love that word, sprang up. He began walking. See, that tells me this really happened. Because that is exactly what you would do if you've never walked before. It, it's similar to the lame beggar it, it, uh, who Paul healed in Jerusalem. What does it say he did? He leapt into the air, and he was leaping around town celebrating with everybody because he'd never leapt before. He never knew what that felt like. And, and the writer of this book, remember, is Luke. Luke was a medical doctor, okay? And he, 
that Luke, this doctor, is describing this scene, and he's very aware of physical limitations, and he says that this person left. This is just another piece of hundreds of evidence that support the historical reliability of the, of the Bible. Because these crippled men were for the first time totally physically healed. And what did they do? They didn't just sit there. They sprang up and they leapt with joy. Right? This is a picture of heaven. This is what's going to happen someday. This is, this is a picture of what heaven's going to be like. Leaping with joy. And it says that all of the citizens of Lystra who saw this lame man spring up and walk around, they knew that it was a miracle because they knew this guy, right? He'd been crippled from birth. They'd probably grown up with him. This man had probably sat on their street every day begging for money. There was no other explanation for this than a supernatural healing. Something had happened, and the citizens of Lystra were amazed. They were amazed by Paul and Barnabas specifically. And what do people do when they see something awesome and something breathtaking? They glorify it. They, glor- they bring glory to it. They point to it. They, look at this. This is incredible. They exclaim how amazing this is. They make a big deal out of this thing. And that's exactly what these citizens in Lystra did. Verses 11 to 13 say, And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. I mean, these citizens, we are worshipers, you guys. You get that? We worship something. (laughs) And... um, in this case, they were worshiping Paul and Barnabas, and they, they, they said, well, Barnabas, he's got to be Zeus, and, and, uh, and Paul's got to be Hermes because he's the talkative one, and so he must be the one talking for Zeus. That's what's going on. Um, well, the, they, they were convinced these were the gods who they, their whole lives had worshiped and made sacrifices to and, and now these gods had come to do miracles among them. And so what does the priest of Zeus do? Well, immediately he, he comes to them with these oxen covered with beautiful garlands to, to the city gates to sacrifice to these two men to celebrate that they finally, they've come to them. Think back a few chapters. If you, do you remember reading about King Herod who, uh, who was dying to be worshipped? Uh, he would have done anything to be worshipped like this. King Herod was, uh, he he, he had this amazingly brilliant silver robe made for him, and he sat on this this throne where the sunlight hit it at just the right time that people began to worship him. They're like, oh my goodness, one of the gods is among us, and Herod loved it. And he he allowed the people to worship him as a god, And, and what we read is at that moment, God struck Herod down, and uh, Herod died a terrible death because he was gladly receiving the glory. It says because he did not give the glory to God. He was receiving the glory that is due to God alone. Well, now Paul and Barnabas, they're in a very similar situation and they gotta decide quickly how to respond to this overwhelming praise that they're receiving. And so in verses 14, 18 to 18, it says, uh, but when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, They tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So Paul and Barnabas here, obviously their response is very different than Herod's was. They were not happy to be worshipped as gods. They were grieved by it. 
They, they wanted no part of intercepting any of the glory that was due to God alone. And, and they wanted no part of giving glory to any of these false gods like Zeus and Hermes. And so the first thing that Paul and Barnabas did was they ripped their garments, right? Which was an ancient outward indication of their horror at what was happening. Blasphemy against the one true God was being committed. And then they run into the crowd and they yell, why are you worshiping us? Stop it. That's what they're saying. We are men just like you. We've got good news for you. Stop worshiping things that are lifeless and, and powerless to save you. Turn away from your statues and from all your false gods and, and turn away from us and from anything else that you might be worshiping, but turn to the living God. Because there's only one living God, he says. And he made the heaven and the earth and all that's in them and even though for many generations he's allowed you to worship false gods that aren't real, even though he's done that, God has shown you in many ways that he does exist. He's given you rain from heaven even though you weren't worshiping him. He blessed your hearts with food and gladness even though you were worshiping false gods instead of him. And so now what we're telling you is turn away from those false gods and turn to the one true God in heaven. And verse 18 says that even though Paul and Barnabas pleaded this way with the crowds, the crowds were still convinced that Paul and Barnabas were gods and just barely Paul and Barnabas restrained them from sacrificing uh, these oxen to them. Well, we know that some of the people in Lystra did eventually listen to Paul and Barnabas' message and they trusted in the gospel and they were saved. But after some length of time, uh, another horrible series of events happened in this town. Verses 19 to 20 say, but Jews came from Antioch in Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. So one of these things, one of the things these verses obviously remind us is, is the danger of mob mentality, how, how quickly people can turn on one another, which we see all throughout the Acts and the Gospels. Um, but Paul and Barnabas, remember these are the towns at which he had, they had recently preached in Antioch and uh, Pisidian Antioch and Iconium, where they were driven out. Well, those those non-believers there who didn't trust in the message were so filled with hatred toward these men that it wasn't enough just to get them out of town. They traveled all the way to Galatia, to these town, this town of Lystra, to hunt them down. And somehow they were able to convince these people uh, in Lystra not to worship Paul and Barnabas, uh, well, Paul specifically, but to kill Paul. We need to murder this man. And so all of these people from from sitting in Antioch and Iconium and this Lystra. I mean, it's this mass mob. They, uh, they bound Paul, and they, they, they would have thrown large stones at him until he was dead, um, or at least until he appeared to be very dead. And, and when they were confident that he was dead, they dragged him outside of the city where his, his corpse would be eaten by animals or decomposed. But... According to verse 20, something incredible happens here, which it's easy to skip over because it says a lot of things in a short amount of time. The disciples in Lystra, it says, when Paul's body was out there, it wasn't moving, I mean, they're out there, they're gathering around his body. And suddenly, Paul rose up. <laughs> okay, this was a miracle. You have to see that here. Not only was Paul alive, but he rose up after being stoned to the point of near death, okay? Uh, this wasn't something that should have happened by natural explanations. If Paul, now think about this, if Paul had survived, he would have needed, what would he really have needed? To be carried to a house on a stretcher and nursed back to health, hoping that somehow all of his brain injuries and all of his broken bones and internal and external bleeding would somehow stop. That's what you'd be, you'd be praying. Oh my goodness, he's breathing. Let's get him inside. Let's just help him. Well, miraculously, the Lord kept Paul alive and he supernaturally guarded his body and he filled Paul with the energy 
to stand up and then go back into the city that just stoned him, okay? We don't know exactly what happened to Paul when he came back, but we know they didn't kill him again. And, well, he didn't die the first time, but they didn't try to kill him again. And the very next day, it says, Paul got up and left town with Barnabas to go preach the gospel to the next major town on the route, which was, which was Derby. Wow. Well, there's a lot in, in this whole passage, verses 1 to 20. One of the big ideas um, from all of these verses is that whether you're wrongly persecuted for your faith or whether you're wrongly praised for the gospel, keep pointing people to Jesus. Keep pointing people to Jesus. And underneath that big idea, there's kind of five takeaways for us. First, we, this passage reminds us that the world around us uh, hasn't changed, that our own flesh in us, and that the devil are strongly opposed to the gospel of Jesus and to his kingdom. This is a present re- reality. And we must remind ourselves regularly that as long as we're living here on earth, we're living in a spiritual battle zone. Uh, we do not live in a spiritually neutral world or a morally neutral world. You are a participant, whether you want to be or not, in a battle for glory. And it's eternal glory. And we know that Jesus already won the war when he died on the cross and rose again. But the fullness of the victory, of his victory, is not going to reach completion until he returns to earth and glorifies his church. And so what that means is for us at this point in time in, in, in history, whatever you believe about God, um, that even though Jesus has won the war, you're still in the battlefield. Jesus said in John 15 to uh, 18 to 19, if he's talking to Christians. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, this, the world around us, you guys, this, the, the sinful world around us, it's not, is it urging you to fight for the glory of God in your life? Is it urging you to fight for what's right? No, it's urging you to treat yourself as a God. It's urging you to do whatever makes you happy in the moment, whatever it takes to make your name great. That's success in the world's eyes. For those of us who trust in Jesus, um, we know this, that even if we do want to see God's name glorified and, and, and lifted high, our spirits are willing, but our flesh is weak, okay? So our, the instructions we're given in God's word is, is with the help of the Holy Spirit, depending on the Holy Spirit, pleading with the Holy Spirit, we must discipline our bodies daily, is what the New Testament says. And we must make our bodies and our thoughts obedient to Jesus. You have to capture false thoughts, uh, we read in the New Testament, and and bring them into obedience to Jesus. Because we've got a lot of false thoughts and a lot of attack coming our way between the world, the flesh, and and the devil. And and so in addition to, to, to the temptations the world throws at us and to our own flesh, which is weak, We know that Satan is also at work against us to try to get us to turn away from God, and he's got a whole lot of ways he's done that successfully. Um, Whether it's through persecution, getting people to give up because it's not worth it, or whether it's through a hardship that you're going through, uh, whether it's through physical pain, um, or despair that he wants you to feel like is a hopeless despair, or whether it's through planning doubts about God and his word and his promises, whether it's through presenting many temptations to you, which he knows uh, he can cater to you because he's been watching you since birth and he knows you pretty well, or whether it's through getting you to invest your life into self-glory, or whether it's through putting all of your hope in worldly wisdom because the world must certainly must, must be wiser than anything that, uh, 
scripture must say, right? Satan is doing everything he can to get you not to obey Jesus with your life. He's doing everything he can to get you not to bring glory to God. So that's, that's one of the things this passage tells us. You've gotta, we have to, <clears throat> to live uh, without awareness. I remember talking to somebody who was very offended that, by that idea once. Because I wore a shirt. I had a, there was a ska band called The Insiders that I really liked. And uh, the shirt said, fight of my life. And had this guy rolling up with a sleeve rolled up. And he said, that's not Christian. I said, you need to read the New Testament. In my head. I didn't tell him that out loud. Um, but I was like, man, the, it's a spiritual war. It's a battle for God's glory. Uh, that's why Paul calls it, I've fought the good fight. <laughs> right? And this is why God tells us repeatedly in his word, and specifically in 1 Peter 5, 6 to, uh, 8 to 11, tells us these instructions. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So that's why when you read in the New Testament, we stand firm, stand firm, stand firm all the time. <clears throat> there's nothing to stand firm against if there's not a battle going on. Right? But there is. We need to know that. Second, <clears throat> this passage reminds us that seeing miracles alone will not produce faith in Jesus. It's not uncommon for people to say, non-believers to say, <clears throat> the message of the gospel and the testimony of the Bible does not give me enough reason to believe that it's true. It doesn't give me enough reason to trust in Jesus. But if God did a miracle for me that I could see, then I would believe in Jesus. So somehow, even though God did miracles for people's past, simply because it happened to them and not us, we think that God's not real. That's not a real good argument. But this is the same thing that the Pharisees told Jesus in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. They said, just perform a sign and we'll believe you. <clears throat> and what Jesus said is, he basically said, get out of here. <laughs> he uh, refused to do miracles for them and he walked away, not because he couldn't do miracles for them, but because he knew that their problem with Jesus, with God, was not a lack of evidence. Their problem was having a heart of stone that did not want to submit to God. And that's ultimately what the issue is. It's not, oh yeah, just show me this evidence, I'll believe. It's like, you don't want to live for God. That's the truth. Think about this. Even after Jesus was crucified on a cross, rose from the dead three days later, in full health, great power, rose just like Paul did, except Jesus actually died. He appeared to hundreds of people over uh, the course of 40 days, and it says some of the di dis disciples still doubted him. When, is the, when are the miracles enough, right? It's like you would think, well, if he had done that, I think I would believe. It's not what scripture says. And here in Iconium, God performs signs and wonders for all the cities, citizens in Iconium to believe in Jesus. And it says many in the town still didn't believe the gospel. And, and when Paul heals this lame beggar in Lystra, uh, they don't worship Jesus. They worship the performers of the miracle, Paul and Barnabas. And it's not until Barnabas and Paul can later explain the gospel a bit that some of these people believe. And then even then, many of them don't believe. They flip and they, they decide to kill Paul, who is the very one who did the miracles in the first place. <clears throat> Remember this, when Jesus sent out 72 followers of his in, uh, in Luke 10, 19 to 20, he said, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So he's saying a person who trusts in Jesus, a person whose name is written in heaven, a person who knows the Lord and whose life is transformed by Jesus Christ 
is a much greater cause to rejoice than the performance of a miracle. Because that is a greater miracle. Okay? As, as amazing as one miracle on earth might be, God making a person a new creation through faith in the gospel is a greater miracle, and this is why. It's an eternally la- lasting miracle, okay? It's not merely a rescue from earthly death. It's a rescue from eternal death. It's, it's, it's giving person, uh, person eternal life. See, even though we read about all these miracles in the New Testament, those people still died, But when a person trusts in Jesus and is, 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 uh, is saved by Jesus, that's the miracle that, that, that uh, is much greater and it says that the angels in heaven rejoice over. And so while God has granted many miracles, <coughs> and he still does do miracles, and he can grant miracles, um, this, is, this is what we really have to be, in this limited time span of life that we have on earth, we've got to be m- much more thankful and celebrate that people trust in the Lord and know the Lord. Because we're all gonna die unless Jesus comes back first. But, but um, the absence of a miracle does not mean that God is not true or God is not loving, even though it feels like that sometimes. But the presence of a miracle is not an indicator of God's eternal favor on you. It's not. Demons can do miracles. What you need is Jesus and faith in Jesus. That's, a, that's the miracle that we're shooting for. We want to see lives transformed by Jesus. Third, <clears throat> following Jesus means turning away from vain things and turning to the living God. This language of turning, it refers to the, the word, sometimes you've probably heard the word repentance, and that's exactly what this is. It's, it's a turning, turning away from something and turning to God. And we do this for the first time when God makes us born again. Um, and as lifelong disciples, then, we make this a way of life. Because it's not like, uh, you know, when you trust in Jesus the first time, you're like, oh, sweet, I, I turned from the world. It's not a problem for me anymore. No. Um, uh, it means this, by God's grace, <clears throat> I'm committed to turning. I'm committed daily. I want to turn um, from those things that I used to put my hope in and that maybe I'm currently putting my hope in in a way that is, is dishonoring to God and that is not glorifying to God. It means right on the battlefield, when we're under attack, it means turning to Jesus and keeping our eyes on him instead. Um, looking to him as our hope and trust and object of our worship. You know, one of the good things of suffering is it, uh, it certainly reveals your false gods and what your false gods can't do for you. Um, just going through this whole thing with my nephew Eli who has cancer. All of a sudden, the TV shows on Netflix that used to make me laugh can't, can't do it for me. Jesus can do it. I mean, he's the only thing we have. Pleading to his name day and night is all we have, right? Um, and so it's, that's a... That's a, a grace given through suffering that it, it reveals those things to us and it, show, it purifies us some and it reminds us that God's on the throne and that he's our only hope. Um, now, if you're not a Christian, this is the word that Peter would say to you and that this passage that Paul and Barnabas would say to you, you need to repent for the first time. You... Uh, you need to turn to the Lord who loves you and you need to turn away from whatever you're hoping in or whatever lies you're believing that are contradictory to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is not a burden. This is the blessing and the salvation of your soul because God loves you. And it's by grace that he's given us this gospel and it's by grace that he makes people born again. And it's by grace that he... um, he is a God of hope and a God of restoration and redemption and that he can bring healing and restoration out of the most broken situations. And even those situations that uh, are not totally healed in this life, um, there's a day coming where we'll have total restoration in Jesus Christ when we meet him face to face. And um, 
And until that day, we just pray, God, please help me to turn away from all the stupid stuff I used to hope in. It's vain. It's vanity. It can't do anything. Help me to turn to the living God who's alive and who cares about me. I'd be a fool not to. Fourth, what should we say to somebody who praises us for something? It's an interesting thing, right? They did this great miraculous thing. There was an evidence of God's grace in their lives. What do we do? Is it wrong to accept a compliment from somebody? Are we, are we uh, accepting uh, glory that is only due to God? Well, <clears throat> it's not wrong to accept a compliment if, if it's a compliment certainly about something righteous and especially uh, if it's something that God has done through you. Um, and this took me a long way to, uh, yeah, for a long time I wrestled, like what do I do with this? Am I prideful if I even accept a compliment? Well, I think what God wants us to do is say thank you because it's pretty rude to reject somebody's compliment but then quickly to say, praise God, or man, all glory to God, if that's what we really mean, if that's what we really believe. There's a religious way of doing that where it's like, you, or you just, it can make you look like you're really super Christian or something, but it, what you wanna know is what's the motive of your heart? It's like, but, but if you're thinking, man, I feel this way often when I preach. Even today, I came up weak. And if by God's grace, he speaks through his word to you today. He's told to, very clear to me. It's very clear to me. It's not from me at all. Trust me. It's only the grace of God. Praise God if he speaks to us today. And if he does anything good to us. I saw, you know, some of you uh, saw the Clemson game on Monday night. I didn't see it, uh, the national championship game. But uh, <clears throat> I heard several people talk about how uh, inspired they were by Dabo Swinney, the head coach of Clemson, um, who's a legit Christian and, and, and the quarterback who is and who, who all season is very quick to give glory to God. And, um, you know, sometimes when you hear people accept an award, you can kind of be skeptical. It's like, well, do they really mean that? Look at the way they live. Well, we're not really to judge that, but it, it was cool to see Dabo. Uh, anyways, I think we have a video. I just want to show this short one-minute clip of what it could look like when somebody praises us. Chris, thank you very much. Dabo, there are a few coaches at any sport who show more joy than you do. How do you describe the joy of the moment? Well, that's, that's been my word all year, and, and I, I just tried to have been, in, I tried to be intentional with that. And um, for me personally, joy comes from focusing on Jesus, others, and yourself. And um, man, I mean, you know, very few people. There's so many great coaches that that are so deserving of a moment like this and never get the chance to experience it. And um, to get to do it once and now to get to do it again, you know, I'm just, it's just, a, it's a blessing. And, I, and I, it's just simply the grace of the good Lord to allow us to experience something like this. And I'm so happy for our team, our fans, our administration, our former players that love the ball. And, uh, and you know, there ain't never been a 15-0 team. And I know we're not supposed to be here little old Clemson and I'm not supposed to be here but we are and I am and I how about them Tigers man I'm so proud of our guys these seniors we beat Notre Dame in Alabama we left no doubt and we walk off this field tonight as the first 15-0 team in college football history and uh, all the credit all the glory goes to the good Lord number one and number two to these young people when you get a young group of people that believe, are passionate, they love each other, they sacrifice, they're committed to, to, to a singleness of purpose, you better look out, great things can happen, and that's what you saw tonight. <laughs> so that was cool. You could tell it was very genuine in that, right? And so may God help us to, to point people to Jesus in different ways to accept and recognize God's grace in our lives, but also to thank God and, and point others to Jesus. And, um, and then fifth, I think what, what I see in this passage is, uh, I think what we, we could see is the pursuing love of God. The pursuing love of God. And my point was this. May God's pursuing love overflow out of us who believe and make us into pursuers of others. So one of the most amazing things about the apostles' efforts here in Acts is it's talks over and over again about their supernatural courage, their supernatural perseverance. I mean, how many times do they have to be mocked, threatened, 
run out of town or beaten up until they say, okay, I'm done. I did my part. Now somebody else has to pick this up. It's their turn. I did my part, right? Well, I, mean, I, I just read about Paul's relentless preaching in the face of never-ending opposition, and I ask myself, man, what is keeping Paul going here? Why does he even care about these people he doesn't even know? And, and if, if Paul really were just a man like me, like he says he is in this passage, how come I don't have this drive to reach the lost, right? It's convicting. And so what do you do? Well, you read Paul's letters. Are we there? We read his letters in the New Testament. And, and as I skimmed some of those this week, I just, you know, what you quickly conclude is that Paul truly loved the Lord. He truly loved Jesus with all his heart and soul and mind and strength. And, and his love for the Lord filled him. Jesus' love filled him. And it drove him to radically love others, both non-Christians and Christians. And it also tells us this, that Paul truly believed Jesus was back from the dead, okay? Paul would have given up much earlier, much earlier, if he didn't think that Jesus was really back. If he thought this was, or if he knew in his own mind he made this whole thing up. Paul believed that Jesus was, was greater than life itself. He was back from the dead. Paul believed in the reality of hell for those who don't trust in Jesus. And Paul believed in the reality of a future glory, which is awaiting all those who do trust in Jesus. And, uh, and when we observe Paul and Barnabas' relentless pursuit of people in Acts and in the New Testament, he is simply embodying the same pursuing love that God has shown us. See, the Bible says God did not pursue us when we were good, when we had it all together, when we were righteous. It says, or when we were even wanting him. <laughs> Christ pursued us and died for us while we were still sinners. It's the first song we sang this morning. And thankfully, God is still pursuing people today. But just like the people of Iconium, we have at times not believed God's word and trusted him. And just like the people of Lystra, we have worshipped ourselves and we've worshipped gods of our making, maybe not statues, but all sorts of different types of things to worship. We have intercepted the glory that is due to God alone. We have given it, this glory to ourselves and to things we've made or things that have been thought up by humans. And just like the Jews and Gentiles, we, we as a human race rejected Jesus and put him to death. And yet, what does Jesus do to you? What does he do to us? He rises up from death. He comes back into town and he pursues us. Not because he is needy. God doesn't need you. Okay? Everything belongs to him. Jesus pursues us, not because he's needy, but because he is mind-blowingly gracious and loving. He is the pinnacle of awesomeness and of radical love. There is nothing you could think up, nothing in existence that is more loving and awesome than Jesus Christ. And he pursues us to enjoy that, to enjoy him forever. He pursues us so that we might not suffer for our sins against him the way we deserve. And so we sing this song in our church, we breathe in his grace and we breathe out his praise. That's our response. We praise him, not just with our words, but with our lives. We grow as his disciples who are becoming more like him. And the more that God helps us to understand this, his love and the, the, uh, the depth of his grace, the, the more that he helps us understand that we in Jesus Christ are God's friends, not his enemies. That we are his children who he loves and died for. That we are his rescued people. And we are this entirely because of his will, entirely because of his doing, entirely because of his love. The more that we understand that and find peace in that, the more that we're glad to speak to others about it the more we want it for others. The more that we want to see people saved and see their lives transformed by Jesus, the more that we want to see Jesus' name loved and adored all across this planet. I spent, you know, I spent about 10 days in the 
10, 12-hour days in the waiting room of a children's hospital last month, I'll tell you what, there wasn't one atheist in there. They may have come in an atheist, but we're talking about Jesus a lot because he's the only hope in that situation for everybody in there. It's just true. I mean, I've got friends. I'm like, it's weird. Talking to the custodian, he's like, will you pray for me? I'm sure, let's talk. You know, it's like, again, one of the things of suffering is it shows us it shows us that as broken as this world is, it, 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 the contrast of God's love and grace for sinners is mind-blowing. And we're so thankful for that, that he loves us. Um, and if we're going to share the gospel, we need his help. Um, and so we have to consistently ask God to do that through us. Because what? We're in a war, right? Every day, before your feet touch the ground, uh, there's probably a lot of thoughts running through your head to distract you from loving God and loving others. But um, we want to see God's name glorified because he is good, he is the only hope, and we want to see, see many people find joy and peace and everlasting salvation in Jesus' name. So, so let's, uh, let's do that on a mission together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you um, for your word. Thank you for this message that you've given us today as a reminder, God, um, though we will face trials and tribulations and much suffering in this life, you have not abandoned us. All your promises are true and all of them are fulfilled in you, Jesus. So what do we have but you? We have nothing. What do we need but you? We need nothing. And so we just want to recognize that and thank you, God. And, uh, and why do we repent? Why do we turn? Because, well, for one, God, because... All of that stuff is vain and empty and can't really help us, but to God, because you deserve the glory. You deserve our lives. You deserve our praise. And it's when we are becoming like you, embracing you, loving others the way um, you've loved us that we find true joy and freedom. So please help us as we do that, God, and uh, help us to be an encouragement to one another as a church family here. Help us to, to reach the people in our lives and in our community with the gospel and love of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name, amen.